Welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast with Matthew Eels. As soon as I got a guitar, I could figure out what the notes were. I'm not good at anything else. Might as well try this music thing. I was writing songs, I guess from the time I was about nine years old. It does do a strange kind of damage being told how good you are. And I'm still called a child prodigy. I woke up on Saturday morning. There I was on the front page of the paper. <laughs> a surprise, surprise. It was a surprise, wasn't it? I think the songs are usually a composite of whatever crap I've heard that day. It's like a sketch and then you start painting on it. If you can imagine it, you can do it. It's unlimited up here. It makes you feel so alive. Every note's important and every word is important. I remember the first show that I ever played, we were 12. It was in an underground pub. I got paid with a Coca-Cola and a meat pie. And I was like, we've made it. <laughs> That's the trailer for The Musical Mind, a portrait in process. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by internationally renowned filmmaker Scott Hicks, for what I consider to be a very special interview. It's interviews like this that are the exact reason I launched Cinema Australia just over 10 years ago. To capture Australian filmmaking stories is what I set out to do, and the stories that Scott shares with us here about his career are priceless. It, uh, as a keen Australian film enthusiast, I spent most of this interview with my jaw on the floor. Scott even shares stories here which he tells me he hasn't shared before, like the full story behind the making of his unreleased telemovie Call Me Mr Brown and pulling a drunk Bill Hunter into line, respectfully of course. Scott also talks about learning from filmmaking giants like Peter Weir and Bruce Beresford, his creative partnership with Australian acting legend Chris Haywood, and of course we talk about Shine. Scott and I actually got so caught up talking about his career that we almost ran out of time to discuss his latest film, The Musical Mind, A Portrait in Process. We do get there eventually towards the end of the interview, so if you're here specifically for that, hang in there. An Emmy, Peabody and multiple actor award-winning filmmaker, Scott Hicks has also been nominated for two Academy Awards as director and writer for Shine and British Academy Awards for directing and best film. His documentary on Philip Glass was shortlisted for Oscar nomination and nominated for an Emmy. He was honoured as South Australian of the Year in 1999 and then as Australian of the Year for South Australia in 2008. Scott received a Doctorate of Letters and a Premier's Lifetime Achievement Award. Together with his close friend David Chiam, CEO of global company MindChamps, Scott formed May 30 Entertainment to create quality entertainment for the international market. The Musical Mind, a portrait in process, marks the first release for May 30. Sparked by the impending 25th anniversary of Academy Award-winning blockbuster Shine, The Musical Mind, a portrait in process, explores the power of the musical brain. Featuring exclusive, intimate footage of superstar international musicians in their private worlds, it opens an intriguing portal into The Musical Mind. The Musical Mind, a portrait in process, is in cinemas from November 23. You can find more details at cinemaaustralia.com.au. Anyway, enjoy. Scott Hicks, thank you for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to be chatting with you. Um, so thank you very much. That's great. Great, Matthew. Good to be with you. 
for the past week, I've immersed myself in your work in in preparation for this interview. Um, I've sat up until all hours of the morning experiencing <laughs> some of your films for the first time, uh, like Call Me Mr. Brown, The Boys Are Back, and, um, and even Shine, which as the editor of a publication named Cinema Australia, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say but um, the, uh, I'm of the belief that films come to you when you're meant to watch them. Uh, that's been the experience for me anyway. Um, right. it, it's been a, an absolute joy immersing myself in your work. Well, that's that's fantastic to hear, and I'm glad you survived it so far. <laughs> I can assure you it was easy to survive, and uh, I, I watched some of these films with my partner as well, and we both walked away saying, wow, we've 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 really learned a lot here, and, and we enjoyed what we watched. Um, but, but, but I'm looking forward to hearing some stories about those films, and I'm really looking forward to chatting about your newest film, The Musical Mind, A Portrait in Progress. Um, so, again, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to join us. Terrific. Thank you. Uh, so before we do chat about those films, I want to go back to the uh, very beginning for you. Uh, you were born in Uganda and moved to England at the age of 10 before moving to Australia when you were 14. Take us back to uh, your days growing up in Kenya and in England. Were film and music already a big part of your life then? Absolutely not. There was um, in Kenya in those days, there was no um, there was no television and there was very little cinema. So I, I mean, I have recollection of the first film I ever saw uh, was that wonderful uh, film called The Red Balloon about a little boy in Paris with his his pet balloon. <laughs> and um, seeing that at the Nairobi drive-in is, is an early recollection for me. Um, and then, of course, but once I was at boarding school, which was from the age of six, um, there was just very little audiovisual stimulation i mean it was just a fact of life and then going to uh, boarding school in england um pretty much followed suit in the sense that the only films we saw were usually had laurence olivier in them you know working his way through the shakespearean canon and um you know watched on a sort of a rattling 16 millimeter projector in the in the school assembly hall that, that kind of thing um and so film and cinema were just totally removed from my world. And mm. as a family, we might venture in England, you know, up to London once a year with the latest James Bond film or or David Lean or, you know, some great moment. Um, but regular cinema going wasn't a thing um, until I really, it really started for me when I, I started at, uh, Flinders University in uh, when I was 16 I um, it just stumbled into the world of film um, it was an absolute sort of accident um, I you know I I had wanted to study English and history um, as my majors but they wouldn't let me do a humanities and a social science so I had to choose another humanities subject to go with my English mm. And I just chose this thing called drama because it thought, oh, you know, read a few plays <laughs> and that'll be that. But it buried in deep in the drama course was this topic called filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And uh, guess what? It was, that was the portal to the rest of my life. I had a little sense of it then, but I walked through that door and it uh, led me into the, <laughs> into this world that I've occupied ever since. Was there a particular moment or, or during that where you knew, like, this this is the career for me? I mean, because you, you said that you were 16. It's quite a developed age. I didn't know what I wanted to do at that age, but um, was there a particular moment for you? No. I, well, it, I never I never associated it with something that you would do for yes. a living. Yeah. Um, it was just simply uh, the most fun thing to do with your friends. Yeah. And there was a bit of equipment, you know, that we got access to, and all, you know, Bolex cameras with sort of 16 millimeter black and white film. And, you know, you, you, you'd, you'd get a bunch of friends together and go out and shoot a few scenes and make a, make a movie. And yeah. I spent most of my honors years making one particular film that was almost feature length, um, which was sort of unheard of, mm. um, which was just like adolescent rambling through, <laughs> through cinema. So, you know, it was, it was, 
I'd, I'd seen a, by then a great diet of, of European cinema, um, you, all the great Italian sort of neorealists and the new wave that was coming out of France. And so there were a lot of exciting things happening in the world of cinema. But it was just, that's what was going on, you know. And uh, so in the, the film sort of regurgitated a lot of those th- ideas or approaches Um I was fascinated with German expressionism and the use of the image to convey emotion. Um, you know, not dialogue wasn't so important. It was it was more the power of the image. You know, yes. and that's always that stayed with me. That that particular thing. Mm. So yeah, it was a it was um, it it was. I, you know, I didn't. I think my parents wondered what on earth I was doing. Um, they, they were never they never tried to sort of discourage me, but it, I think they thought I must have I wasted a lot of time going to the cinema and uh, watching television. You know, um, well, thankfully you did because uh, <laughs> look, look what we've got now. Now that film that you mentioned just then was that The Wanderer? Uh, yes, it was. Yes. Where on earth did you hear of that? <laughs> hey, it's it's on your it, it is online somewhere. Oh, I, right. I, I actually oh, couldn't God. watch it, but uh, yeah, it is it is noted online. It, it was a film that I wished was available to watch online. Um, do you have a copy of it somewhere? Is it is I it stored do. safely? I, I, it's 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 stored in a dark vault <laughs> where <laughs> no one can view it. No, I no, I have a DVD of it. I mean, look, there's some scenes in it which I think, oh wow, you know, I got that right. Yes, but there's yes. a lot of it's a very um you know it was an adolescent sort of regurgitation of of things that I'd seen in cinema and mm. but it was you know it it was the fact that it became such an obsession to make it and I had to get the money together to make it because the resources at the university were very slender yes. and you know I had to get find other people that would put money into this mm. and that led me to all sorts of things and I you know, realized that it was those days, it was the early years of the Whitlam government. We're talking early 70s. Yeah. And um, and there was more money being put into the arts. And incredibly, a man who was the chair of the then, the version of whatever it was called, the Australian Film Commission of those days, mm-hmm. came to talk to us students at Flinders and tell us that, you know, you could apply for grants to make films. And yeah. This man's name was John Murray, and he was a renowned film director at the time. Yeah. Um, he was married to a woman called Gillian Murray, and uh, she later became Gillian Helfgott. Right. Wow. Unbelievable. Now, well, it was extraordinary. I mean, of course, no sense of that at the time whatsoever. Yes, yeah, yeah. But through the vagaries of, of life uh, that I, you know, ended up, making a film about David and Gillian. Um, it, it's just, yeah, it's, it's it's a bit of a mind bend. <laughs> I am sitting here right now with my mind absolutely blown. <laughs> I, I can't believe that you've just shared that story with us. That's incredible. <laughs> no, it was uh, it was certainly something. And then, you know, that, that sort of was my graduation film, as it were, for, the, yeah. for my honours degree mm-hmm. uh, i spent so much time and effort on it that i didn't do all of the paperwork that i was meant to have done right the drama uh, faculty were kind enough or you know generous enough or maybe they recognized there was something going on yeah. um, where they apportioned certain sections of the film in lieu of written work that should have yes. been handed up for the German expressionist thing or whatever it was, you know, Oh, well, we called that part of the wanderer German expressionism, you know, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> you know, so it was, it was, it was broad minded of them. And I got my honors degree and that was that. Wow. And then, then what, I mean, I was out, out in the world and, and uh, I just wanted to make another film. Mm-hmm. So I did, I went, you know, collaborated with, a couple, particularly close friend of mine, Kim McKenzie at yeah. Flinders. He later became a renowned ethnographic filmmaker based out of Canberra. Mm. Um, and we set about pulling together money to, you know, make a film. And again, there was a link that happened out of this, which was a project officer that I had to deal with for a grant that we got from um, the Film Commission or whatever they were called back then. Yeah. Uh, was a woman called Jane Scott. Now, Jane later became the producer that I asked to work with me on Shine. Wow. 
Um, so again, these links, these connections that you make sort of in an un... You, you never know where something is going to lead, you know. No, that's true. That's true. And, uh, you know, Australia is a huge country, but when it comes to this film industry, it really is quite small and compact, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's sort of that that led to... Because uh, I, I remember one... <laughs> I got a call. I got a call from uh, Jane one day on that film that we were making, which was called the uh, the Peregrine. We uh, we called it Down the Wind in the end. Oh and, yes. Um, um, and she she asked for something like she said, "You haven't you haven't bought a new Volvo, have you?" I was like, "What? I drove an old Volkswagen." And I said, no, what are you talking about? She said, oh, someone's just gone and spent their grant on a new Volvo and we're trying to work out who it is. Oh, unbelievable. Who was it? Did they find I, out? No, I never did find out. <laughs> but, you know, so so that was that. And then um, and then the then an amazing thing happened, which was Premier Don Dunstan, the sainted Don, as I think of him, um, among his many, many um, initiatives in the world of arts and culture in South Australia in the 70s decided we were going to have this film this thing called a film corporation yes which you know there weren't any of those so nobody really knew what it was and um and that was just around the time that I was you know graduating out of out of Flinders so just amazing sort of opportunity opened up yeah. in the sense that you know Dunstan created a created a portal you know yes, and yeah. and uh what it meant was that filmmakers great filmmakers the great filmmakers of the day came to live in adelaide peter weir bruce beresford and they made films here and people had to you know you you could scrabble to get a job on the crew in whatever capacity um did you do uh, that did you i did get, yeah well, I worked on several films of those great directors yeah. uh, you know as, a, as an assistant and, you know, became a an assistant director, yeah. uh, which is a very humble position, um, you know, third assistant director. Uh, I worked my way up the ladder to become a first assistant director over the years, um, which I did with uh, Bruce Beresford on yes. his last Australian movie before he went off to make um, Tender Mercies. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that's right. But anyway, look, I've worked... It was a film called The Club, and it was about an Aussie rules football club yes, yeah, written by David Williamson. Yeah. And I was first assistant director on that. I mean, when you work closely to to such, you know, enormously talented and experienced people, it's like a like a living film school. Yes, yeah. Uh, and you learn things you could never learn at school mm -hmm. just by being there and seeing and absorbing it and that was amazing. do you remember some of those uh, things oh, that you learned at the time oh my god yes you yeah know, absolutely you know in fact i had with um peter i had this um amazing experience which was he one day um i was in the production office and peter was talking to the producer matt carroll and um he said i want someone to videotape rehearsals i'm doing with the main cast the main couple in the film this was a little telly movie he was making called the plumber and um he said i need someone nip with a camera uh and we'll just you know get a room somewhere and we'll you know i wanted to film rehearsals and so i can see what's happening on the camera and i and matt <laughs> producer said what producers very often do we haven't got any money for that you know we haven't got any money to hire a cameraman yeah. And I was just standing over doing some photocopying or something, and Peter looked around and said, well, you know, what about Scott? And Matt said, oh, yeah, well, sure, there's always Scott, you know. <laughs> so he said, well, he'll do, come on. And I spent two days or three days, I can't remember exactly, in a room with Australia's premier film director yeah. working with his two lead actors, yeah. and I was my, my job was to film them. Yeah. And I would, so... He just wanted me to film whatever was happening, but I got into it a bit. I, I yeah, like your your director cool. instincts kicked in. <laughs> I was shooting over the shoulder stuff, and I was. And he looked at <laughs> he looked at what I was doing. He said, "You're getting into this, aren't you?" And I said, "Well, you know, yeah. I mean, but it was look, it was like a first hand masterclass. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't you can't buy that. People would dream, could only dream of having those experiences. Absolutely, and I mean, some nowadays, of course, you, with attachments and 
and so on, it is possible, which is yeah. terrific. But there was no formal, no formality for that back in those days. Um, yeah. And and it, the thing was that Peter was of that generation that had had to invent the process of filmmaking themselves. Because yeah. as he said, when he received his honorary Oscar, hugely deserved, mm. five-time nominee, I think he was, for an yeah. Oscar. Mm. And he was given an honorary Oscar. And in his speech there, he said that they had no forebears. There were no predecessors for his generation of filmmakers because there had been no film industry for years. Mm. And they had nobody whose knee they could sit at to learn from. They had to make it up. Well, he was my predecessor. Mm. You know, I was at his knee learning. Do you know what I mean? It was a really powerful thing. Scott, what a what an experience that must have been for you, and and what a film school. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I you know, I've had other graduates of NIDA, I'm not NIDA of of AFTA's early graduates, very early graduates like Phil yeah. Noyce. And yeah. Phil Noyce said to me one one day, well, "You were so lucky you got to work with these directors." He said because the first time I walked onto a movie set, he said, "I, I had no idea how anybody really went about it." Yes, yeah. <laughs> You know, mm. so yeah, incredible. Was... I want you to uh, take us back to your uh, music video days as well here, um, ah, because I... your first uh, gig making music videos. Uh, how who was it for, and and how did that come about? Who was the band? Well, that that came about because because I, I was asked that after I made one of the great things the South Australian Film Corporation was made to do at the outset by Dunstan was they had to offer all um, government film work had to be offered out to be tendered in tendered on by the private sector. Wow. Okay. Now this meant that you, I just formed a little company with a colleague um, and we put in bids onto scripts that would be issued out, you know, that we need to make a 15 minute film on, you know, spot welding or artesian bores or something. (laughs) We avoided those, but often sometimes there were films that required actors Mm or were films to do with art. And those were the ones that we focused on. Um, So I'd made a number of short films and short sponsored documentaries. Um, And out of that, um, my work sort of got noticed. And one day out of the blue, I was offered a script for a feature film called Freedom for the South Australian Film Corporation. Now, Mm you know, no South Australian had directed a feature film for decades. Wow. Um, going back to the 50s or something. Mm-hmm. So this was an amazing thing. And I was 27 years old or something. Um, and it was like, wow, incredible. So I made this film, which was the content wasn't necessarily what I would have sought out. Yes. It was such an opportunity. Um, and the soundtrack for the film was was created by Don Walker, Cold Chisel. Yes. And uh, Don said to me, look, I think with the opening track for the movie, I think we need a vocal in that. And I was saying, oh, really? Oh, I, like, I like the song as it is. He said, no, no, yeah, look, I'm going to use this young singer from Perth called Michael Hutchins. Yeah. And uh, and that's how we connected. Michael sang the opening uh, track to Freedom. Um, and then I was asked to uh, make a, a little clip with Michael to publicize the film. Yeah. Um, and the the manager of In Excess at that time watched me working with Michael. And uh, Michael was really responsive, you know, to direction. Mm-hmm. I was directing him, you know, I wasn't just pointing a camera, I'd be asking him to do certain things, you know, or do certain thing another way, and and he could do it. And this guy watched me doing this and said to me, um, I want you to make three clips for In Excess. We've got this new album coming out and I want you to do three clips. I want them all to be absolutely different to each other. You get these, I'll give you the tracks. Anyway, it was, it was another door. I had no idea what to do, <laughs> but never say no. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Just say yes and then yeah. figure it out. Um, so... So that's what I did. We 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 did these three clips. Um, one of them sort of went ballistic in the sense that it helped to break in excess into the American market because it mm. was 
first viewing of them on the then nascent MTV. Yeah. Um, and even a, a minute of it was shown on the CBS News or something to 70 million people. So it was like a breakthrough for them um, and a learning curve for me. Yeah. Know? Now, was this uh, before Richard Lowenstein uh, took over making music videos for NXS or did, did you feel like you were taking work time, away from Richard? I think he'd done stuff possibly even before that. I can't remember, yeah. but yeah. Um, and certainly did stuff after that. Um, I never heard from them again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I made these three clips for next to nothing. Yeah. Uh, but it was a fabulous experience. I really yeah. enjoyed yeah. it. But um, not until I was nominated for an Academy Award did I hear from them. <laughs> yes, right. Interesting. And what was that for? Well, that was for Shine. <laughs> right. Oh, yes. No, mean, what, no, no. No, what was, it was what just, was no. They just said congratulations. Right. Okay. Oh, fantastic. Um, that's mm. uh, uh, these stories. I can't believe some of these stories that you're sharing with me at the moment. Uh, uh, they're just unbelievable. And I, I'm sure you've told these stories before, but um, yeah, it's, no, it's not so... all of them. Some of them no? come to mind. So, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've watched quite a few of your films over the last week, um, and I would have loved to have watched uh, The Wanderer, which we just spoke about, but it is impossible to find. So I did start with Call Me Mr. Brown, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, Australian films like that are the exact reason that I started the Cinema the Cinema Australia and the Cinema Australia podcast, wow. because I would have I would love to have been able to listen to an in-depth interview with, say, yourself and, and Chris Haywood at the time about the making of this film. Um, I'm wondering, was Call Me Mr. Brown well-received at the time? Or what was that experience like? Well, what, <laughs> what was amazing was that, um, I mean, freedom uh, came and went very quickly. Yeah. It didn't make much impact. You know, some people liked it. A lot of people never saw it. That was That's what happened. So mm. I, I didn't know, you know, it was supposed to, I thought, oh, I'd, I'd roll on to another fabulous offer or something. But no, that didn't happen. So... Um, I had to figure out, well, well, what am I going to do? And I stumbled on this story of the Qantas bomb hoax yes. in a book of great Australian crimes. <laughs> and um, it was fascinating. And I, how this man had completely hoodwinked Qantas with, you know, a terrible plot that he had, yeah. which was yeah. that he'd put a working altimeter bomb on a plane that had taken off for Hong Kong. And, what stopped it being just a kind of sounded like a, you know, a, a crazy tale was that he, he showed them or told them where to find a replica of the bomb that he had said he'd put on the plane. Yeah. And in this locker at, at mascot airport was a working altimeter bomb. And that put the fear of God into everybody. Yes. Yeah. Plane was seven hours in the air well, they ripped the aircraft apart looking for this so-called bomb hidden. Yeah. So this was an amazing story, which all ended happily ever after in the sense yes. the plane ultimately landed. It was a hoax. Yes. A hoax. <laughs> but what he, what he demanded was $500,000 in cash, which in those days was like $10 million, yeah. you know, um, or more, I don't know. But um and he wanted it in cash and he wanted it handed over on the front steps of Qantas house at 6.15 in the evening in the middle of the rush hour. Uh, and he would give them the whereabouts of the bomb so that the plane, it could be disarmed and the plane could land. Um, the core of it was the phone conversations that he did yeah. from various phone boxes all around Sydney, as you know, from seeing the mm. film. But mm. They are verbatim from the transcripts of the actual phone conversations. Unbelievable. Turned up in the research. And it was, it was, it was a black comedy. Yeah. I mean, it was unbelievable dialogue yes. yeah. between this sort of kind of hopeless criminal and a, 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 a terrified Qantas that wanted nothing but the safety of their passengers. Yeah. So anyway, this, sorry, I rambled on so much. No, no, no. But the thing was that we uh, wanted to be responsible. We went to Qantas and said, look, we're going to make this film about this incident. And Qantas just didn't want to know about it. They just, and they just ignored us. Um, we tried repeatedly to say, look, can you brief us on security and tell mm -hmm. us if there's things you don't want us to show or there's whatever. So they would not respond. And we, I'd, I talked to many, many people who were working for them at the time or had worked. I spoke to the pilot of the aircraft 
I spoke to the person who had been the head of Qantas at the time, who actually handed over the money. Um, and, you know, it was, we, we were really diligent, but nothing, they wouldn't, they wouldn't help us. Yeah. Um, so eventually we raised the money to make this film. I mean, um, and we started shooting and some money was being invested from uh, South Australian uh, sources. Yeah government money and so Qantas sent a delegation to Adelaide um to to monster the premier then John Bannon uh that you know they said to him you you have to stop this film it's a security risk uh it's got your government money in it and you must stop it what were they so worried about well they they were you know terrified of a repetition like a copycat thing oh yes yeah you know Mm something of that order and, mm. you know, and but he looked them in the eye and he just said, I've got to remind you, gentlemen, we live in a thing called a democracy here. Yes, yes. And we're not in the habit of banning films. Yeah. Uh, so quite frankly, you know, um, you can get lost. So they were sent away with their tail between their legs. So they then their next move was to contact us, the filmmakers, yeah. and say, how much will it cost us to buy this whole film off you when you've done it? Without being released. They were going to get rid of it. They were going to, you know, burn it. Um, So we gave them a number. (laughs) And now we'd become Mr. Brown. I mean, it's like (laughs) now we were sort of demanding money. What what was the number? Are you happy to share that? Or do you remember? The film cost nearly, it cost about $937,000 from memory. Wow, wow. So we said to them, it's about a million is what it will set you back. Yeah, yeah. Um, they realized that this was a really stupid idea. <laughs> and But the, their way of dealing with it was to, again, shut up shop and not deal with us. Yes, yeah. Um, but what happened was that they instead went to Network 10, who had uh, a pre-sale on the film, which was part of the financing structure, mm. and they threatened them with... Um, uh, by that they would remove all their advertising and contra from the network if they ever screened the movie. Unbelievable. So we we delivered the finished film and it was never screened. Unreal. It's never so, been so... screened in Australia. And it it was nominated. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. Still to this day, never been <laughs> this, screened. To this day. <laughs> oh. To my knowledge, it's never been screened. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I haven't watched every minute of Network 10 for the last 40 years, but (laughs) unless they buried it at midnight sometime, but, you know, it's been seen all over the world, everywhere, even in, it was bought in Israel, for example, and screened there, and you can't say that's a country that is without security risks. No, no. Um, So this was absurd, you you know, um, and in its turn, 10 said to us, we're not going to pay you properly. <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to pay you part of what we said we'd pay you because right, we can't right. screen the movie. Yeah. And I said, it's not our fault. Yeah. But you owe us, the, the, this is a contract. You owed us this money. No, no. Yeah. Anyway, I had to fight tooth and nail. We eventually got the money out of them. But the film was buried. And no. uh, it was amazingly, though, nominated as best Best telly movie in the AFI, then the AFI awards. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So lost. who submitted it? Who, who submitted it to the well, AFI at the time? Was we, it? we submitted okay, it. Right. You, know, yeah. you could yeah. submit your film. They could, yeah. you, the film in those days didn't have to have necessarily been seen yes. by that stage. Yeah. Um, but there it was, one of four uh, telly movies in that year. And it was the year that Jane Campion won with two friends. Unreal. But Absolutely. So there, my second film just had disappeared without trace like my first. Oh, this is just insane. <laughs> this is crazy. Like, well, where, did, where is this taking me? I don't know. Yes. We're in the mid-80s now, and it's like I've gone nowhere. Yeah. You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at cinemaaustralia.com.au. Um, so, I, I want I want to ask you about Chris Haywood and your relationship with Chris because he played the lead in this film, obviously. Uh, Peter, he's stunning. Uh, I think he's absolutely amazing. Uh, he's so good in this, and yeah. and you talk about black comedy. This is the black comedy role of the lifetime. He's so good in it. Uh, both uh, yourself and Chris would go on to make quite a few films together. Uh, the yeah. earliest one that I can tell that you worked on was No Going Back in 1981. But tell yeah. us about your friendship with Chris and and where that began. 
Well, it grew out of those sponsored documentaries that the South Australian mm-hmm. Film Corporation was making. Um, you know, and as I said, I chose films that involved actors. Now, I thought, well, let's try and get really good actors if we can, because I wanted to learn. I wanted I don't, how do you what do you do? How do you talk to an actor? What do you what do you how do you direct someone? Mm-hmm. So um where possible, you know, I would I contacted um, you know, the one of the, the greatest management company in Australia, which is Shanahan Management. Mm. And in those days, uh, it was Bill Shanahan who ran that company. It was his company. And I remember calling him as a, you know, ingenue saying, um, look, I'm doing these little, this little documentary here. That's got, you know, have you, have you, is, you know, I really like Chris Haywood. Is there any chance that he could, you know, could we afford to, to have him work with us for a few days or, and Bill would say, well, I'm, let's let's ask him. And they found, you know, like Chris would have a few days off between some bigger projects. He was already a, you know, major yes. actor. Yes, yeah, yeah. Mid-70s. Um, and so he would come come down to Adelaide, work with me for a few days. And boy, you know, he was like, I could, you just learn so much from having an actor of his calibre. Um, you know, and it really... So anyway, that's how I sort of started to cut my teeth in directing actors. Mm. Um, did a couple of things with Chris. And then eventually when it came to having Call Me Mr. Brown, I mean, it was, we already had a rapport and he knew, I, I think he figured he's a very, look, Chris is an actor. I, the way I read it back then was he was always so well prepared with his ideas mm. in case the director was a blithering idiot, you know, mm. he would never look bad. That's why one of his secrets is he never looks bad in anything. No, that's, that's very <laughs> true. That, that um, is so true. So, so, and as an example, you know, on the first time, first scene I directed him in, um, uh, he, he went, you had to walk to the back of this car and put something in the back of a car or and he said, "This dialogue's no good. It's look, it's all it's finished. By the time I get to the car, the dialogue's finished. What, what what's going on? Why why isn't it? Why you don't want to do it?" I said, "Hang on, Chris. No, no, you don't start the dialogue until you get to the car, right?" Mm-hmm. So that's direct. That was the first little bit of directing, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he said, "Oh, right. Okay, fine, great. You know." So, but the thing was, it was about learning and responding, and you know, it gets more sophisticated than that, but. In in simple terms, it was like talk to your actors. Yes, yeah. You know, tell them what mm. you're thinking because they they can't read your mind. You know. Yeah. Mm. And so we we had a great rapport after that. So when it came to call me Mr. Brown, I thought, my God, Chris would be amazing, and he jumped at it. He loved oh, it. Yeah. He loved it. Yeah. He was fantastic. He really does make this film. Um, it's, and. It's other than being, you know, this great entertaining film overall, something else that stood out for me was this big, booming performance by uh, the late great Bill Hunter. Um, oh. his, his performance here as Detective Sergeant Jim Jack McNeil, it's quite an aggressive one. He's a, he's a very angry character here. So I'm yeah. wondering, what, what what was it like to work with Bill on this film? Was his character as angry as, as Bill had uh, portrayed him? Yeah, pretty much. I think, yeah. you know, the thing was he was playing a a senior sort of New South Wales cop in, in an era when there was a great deal of corruption and, yeah. you know, very, some very poor policing um, back in those days, you know. So, uh, and really it was monumental incompetence on the day that let, you know, Macari, the the hoaxer, drive away from the front steps of Qantas House in the rush hour with half a million dollars in cash. Yes. And and not be able to tail him. Mm-hmm. They just completely failed. They got stuck in a lift. <laughs> it was like it was like a it was a total you know it's a French farce. Yes. Um, yeah. So anyway, so Bill um, Bill was my dream for for this character, and oh, I couldn't believe it when he accepted the part. And the whole I had a, a superpower cast. You know, yes. Was, yeah. Um, yeah. But Bill um, Bill had. You know, I mean, Bill was known. He was a he was a big time drinker. You know, mm. and uh, and, I, and I say this with all due respect. He was a, he was he was such a great actor. Mm. Um, but one particular morning, I went in 
to the studio where we were shooting these scenes and oh this uproarious laughter coming from the makeup room and i went through there and, and bill was there you know and he was he was off he was blind drunk you know oh, and man. made up this was like eight o'clock in the morning oh no oh and i thought oh my god what am i what am i gonna do you know like anyway i asked everybody to to leave and it was really difficult you know but because I, I was just a young whippersnipper sort of director with long hair that just you know with this legend of australian cinema i said to him bill i wrote this part with you in mind you know i thought if i could have the great bill hunter play this part it would be a really meaningful thing it is incredibly important to me we get this right you know and he said to me no one's ever talked to me like that before wow and I, I didn't at the first I thought, oh Christ, he's gonna hit me. <laughs> um and anyway, he he called for some he wanted black coffee. Uh, he said, Can you give me some time? I said, Yeah, I'll give you time. We've got other things to do. Yeah. And he and he pulled himself together. And it yeah. it really meant something, you know, because sometimes you you have to bite that bullet. You know, yes. it's a really tough thing. Yeah, and I knew, but he's a he's a he was a you know he's a pugnacious chap. I mean, I yeah. I loved him, I loved him, but it was a. Mm-hmm. I had worked on a film that he was, he was, cast in. I'd worked as an assistant director on a film, mm-hmm. and one day, uh, what what I knew about this pugnacity thing was that I, I had to go and I forget exactly what it was. I had to knock on his door and give him a fresh call sheet or something or other. You know, I was just a functionary on the film he answered the door and in his cups you know and uh, and i gave him the call sheet and he said that's great mate and he grabbed my and he headbutted me bang and like oh so that's what i knew he could do wow wow <laughs> it's just like it was a sign of affection i think yeah 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 <laughs> and a great lesson there for uh, other directors who are listening to this about you, know, <laughs> you, you you taking that time to speak to bill about what you wanted as a director um, and what you yeah, expected from it, him it was it was it was a critical moment yeah because yeah. uh you know it um he he knew that i was serious in intent yes and, yes and, but i'd I was, you know, before, the, one of the difficulties I had was that we weren't able to have any rehearsal time before we started shooting mm. because the actors were all busy people and they, yeah. they were available, you know. So yeah. in those days, it was very, um, it was very much in vogue to have workshops, you know, you'd have workshops. And, um, and I'm thinking, oh, God, I can't workshop my actors, <laughs> you know. Like, yes. So on the day one of shooting, you know, you're shooting scenes, you know, you're rehearsing yeah. on the set. And that's actually become my habit ever since, by the yeah. way. Very little oh, rehearsal right. before. Yeah. yeah. But I remember saying to Bill, um, oh, God, I say, I'm so sorry we weren't able to workshop this scene. <laughs> he said, listen, mate, who wants to fucking workshop the director's insecurities for days? I went, oh. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> he was a great man, a great actor, and and uh, I don't miss. I don't wish him any disrespect. Um, yes, yeah. His 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 legacy is enormous, and yes, yeah. doesn't need me to say. So my my tales are just about um, a stumbling young director, really yes, trying that's to come right. to terms with a great, a, a monster talent of the Australian industry. Yeah. Now, are you happy for us to let listeners know that the film is available to watch on YouTube if they want to watch it? Yeah, they can until I take yeah. it down. <laughs> yes, yes. Catch it while you can. <laughs> yeah, catch it while you can. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, so let's move on from that film and jump into this absolute masterpiece that is Shine uh, because it does play into the musical mind quite a bit. Um, yeah. There's really not a lot to be said about this film that you wouldn't have spoken about already, but I do have a few questions about it. Firstly, does it feel like it's been 25 years? It's Look, it's unbelievable, but life's a bit like that. You know, you, yeah, you turn yeah. around and a quarter of a century starts. Yes. Um, so, no, it was, but obviously it's 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 been the thing that has defined my career, you mm-hmm. know, ever since. And yeah. um, 
you know, some, something that I, well, I mean, I, I remain rem immensely proud of because it, 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 it grew out of a chance meeting, um, you know, uh, with with a, a pianist who was passing through town in in 1985, the year that I made Call Me Mr. Brown. Yeah. A, a little story in the paper, this pianist was recovering from illness and I used to go to classical concerts, so I went to see him perform and it was the most amazing performance I'd ever seen. Yeah. And I, I just went up to him and Gillian, erstwhile wife of John Murray, um, yeah. uh, you know, had, had married David and and I said to them, what's the story, you know? And that's where it began. But it took 10 years to actually make the film. Make it, yeah. It was 1995 yeah. before I yeah. was shooting it. Mm. Nobody wanted to know about it. It was like but nobody that was, oh, you know, you could clear a room <laughs> by walking in with a guy, oh, here he comes with a stupid piano story of his again. Really? Is that what it was yeah, like? Yeah, no, no. It was yeah. like, it was just impossible. It was like, yeah. whatever. It was, like, you know, Nobody, who's going to be interested in a character who doesn't control his destiny? And I feel, yeah. not we all, none of us really control our destiny. No, no. The film was life changing for you. Did it feel like an Oscar worthy film while you were making it? Did it? Did it have that kind of buzz on set? It didn't, no, I mean the huh? Oscars were not a thing that anybody ever even thought about in yes, those. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like a, yeah. another planet, you know, yeah. on another planet. You just. It was nowhere in your mind. You yeah. wouldn't even dream of, you know, what would then AFI awards or something. Yeah, yeah. But just the objective was just to make the best film we possibly could with the money we had, mm. and you know, um, everything else flowed from that. It was yeah. from having a vision, and organizing and executing it, you know, as best you could with yeah. a, with a really great crew of people a, you know a fantastic cast i mean really you know it was, was obviously a powerful experience but it was the culmination of everything i knew about filmmaking to that point in time yes 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 i've done and a really... lot of documentary work in the interim big mm -hmm. very big documentary work i'd won an emmy for one you know series i'd made for for discovery channel i'd you know so I, i'd moved on down a path of telling factual stories and and this was a, a you know a dramatically interpreted history of a person's life mm -hmm. um, seven seven nominations came down through the down the phone line as it was in those days um <laughs> from via fine line the people who'd bought the film which had caused a riot at sundance and i mean a riot yeah yeah um and uh, you know, thwarted the even then legendary, um, if not notorious, Harvey Weinstein. Yes, yeah. Um, and it was, so it was, I mean, it was, look, it was a topsy-turvy, life-changing experience, which propelled a number of us involved with the film into another mm -hmm. stratosphere. Yeah. Um, I, I guess the one thing that, again, I'm going to ask you about somebody's particular performance here, but I guess the one thing that really jumped out of the screen for me, seeing it with fresh eyes, was Noah Taylor's performance as the adolescent David. Um, he's yeah. so unbelievably impressive here. And I was almost disappointed to see him switched out by Jeffrey Rush. And, and that's not taking anything away from <laughs> right. Jeffrey's performance here, obviously, you know, which certainly is Oscar worthy. But um, yeah, I, I just thought that Noah's performance here, it was just unbelievable. Uh, was it always the plan to have two actors play David in his later years? Yes, yep. um, it was. And it was, a, it was a dilemma. It was a huge dilemma of how to do it. And mm. Um, and even when I decided on on Noah, I mean Jeffrey, I, I had decided on, and Jeffrey hadn't done hardly anything in film. I think yeah, he was yeah. like the second detective in the alley or something like that. <laughs> but you know, it was a uh, it was the script of a lifetime for him, mm. obviously. And um, but then there was that you know there was the adolescent David through to the young adult. That was really difficult because Jeffrey was more mature than that. You couldn't yes, have yeah. him playing that young. And I said to Liz Mullinar, who was our casting uh, agent there, um, brilliant, brilliant person. Um, 
I said, I, I think I want Noah Taylor. She said, you can't possibly. No, no one's ever going to believe Noah Taylor is a young Jeffrey Rush. Yeah. Look, 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 look at them together. Look at that photo. She put two photos. I said, yeah, but Liz, they're never going to see them together. No, that's right. Yeah. And it's the, 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 the illusion is up to me how, yeah. how, how I convey that or how we get Noah to begin the process of disintegration of speech patterns and so on yeah. that will be picked up in rift on by jeffrey you know yes, like yeah so um i say rift on but it was all scripted um, yeah yeah and and based you know on recorded conversations with david helfgott which i have to tell you underneath my computer where i'm sitting now is a yeah. plastic box and in it is a box which says helfgott research tapes <laughs> oh which are the original audio cassettes yeah. of my conversations with David Helfgott. Oh, wow. For some reason. Wow. Um, right here. Anyway. That's please crazy. keep those safe. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're going to the, the South Australian Library has acquired my archive. Oh, um, great. Um, which they are thrilled about, and they're sort of processing and curating materials and so all of these things will end up in that archive yes um because really it is it includes you know the the whole history of the development yeah, yeah. and creation of shine oh that's great to hear now am i exaggerating here when i gush about noel's performance so no uh, i don't uh, think you are i think okay, it's absolute, great. no no totally look and um in uh, at the time the dilemma for fine line was who do we promote yes for the academy award and mm. i was complete babe in the woods i said why did you promote both of them they said because it'll split the vote yeah and we'll yeah. get it yeah so and anyway i i just didn't fully believe that this thing was going to go to the oscars yeah I mean, it just seemed totally you know it was just it just wasn't in my 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 you know frame of reference um and uh so anyway it, they, they ended up you know uh, jeff jeffrey did a tremendous amount of publicity work and so on in, in America and, yeah. you know, and it ended up, you know, with him. Uh, to get yeah, in the yeah. Fantastic. Um, um, now, now you mentioned this name here. I, I wasn't, I didn't know if I wanted to mention it or not. I didn't know if we'd had enough time, but uh, obviously a few films later uh, was The Boys Are Back and that was made with Harvey Weinstein as, as producer. Um, are you happy to talk to us a bit about uh, working with Harvey on, on well, that actually, film? Well, Harvey, uh, Harvey wasn't involved with it. I mean, it was Miramax, certainly. Yes, yeah. um, and uh, I mean, I've got uh, I've got a bunch of Harvey stories, but <laughs> everybody does, and it's interesting how. Time. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but um, but it, yeah, it was interesting ending up working with Miramax on another on another film, but it was yeah. still an Australian uh, production. So the producers were actually uh, uh, Tim Tim White um, uh, and uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, so it was it was. It was a another yeah. It was another word. I I don't know that Harvey had anything to do with it. Now that I think about oh, good. it. But well, that's he, that's yeah. actually a good thing because I've spoken Probably. to other filmmakers who you know did work with him on movies, and it wasn't a pleasurable experience at all. Uh, Harvey, in particular, Harvey, the Harvey Scissorhands. I think. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> it was Jill Bilcock actually who um, who shared some wild stories about Harvey with me, and uh, yeah, I, I think she called him a monster, which was yeah, yeah well, <laughs> very was, honest of her. Yeah. He was perceptive. I mean, he was. Um, look, uh, you know, I I had meetings with him. He really mm. wanted me to work and you know, do films for Miramax after mm. after Shine. I yeah. mean, he really wanted Shine. That was it. Oh, yeah. I mean, they had failed to to enter into any negotiation with us before making the film. They were shown the film before it was ever offered to anyone else. Interesting. They just did nothing, yeah. and uh, so. You know, in the end, Fine Line put a huge amount of energy and huge resources behind it, um, and they really wanted to thwart Harvey, yeah. who was king of the the ring at that time. Mm. Um, so there was quite a story there. But in meeting him was, you know, it was wrong. Look, he was a remarkable person in the sense yeah. he was absolutely passionate about film, mm. um, but he had a tremendously bullying nature. Um, literally, when you know, when we sat down to talk, I mean, I had tried over and over again to get Miramax involved, mm -hmm. flew to Los Angeles. We tried, we tried every which way to get, get them engaged. Uh, they, they just ignored us. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
So I told him all of this. And I, I said, when we sat down to, to actually meet, I said, I said, I've got to tell you that he said, shut up. <laughs> he said, are you listen to me? Yeah. And I thought, yeah. Oh, this is an interesting relationship. <laughs> and then he blew off this whole thing about how he, you know, we should be going with Miramax because of blah, 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 you know, and fine. And then he petered out eventually. And I said, is it my turn? I get to talk now. <laughs> he said, yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, right. But yeah, he had that bluster, but there was a passion. Yes, yes. For filmmaking. Mm, and then mm. there was all this other stuff clearly going on, you know, you couldn't begin to guess at, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could obviously ask you a million more questions about your entire <laughs> career, but we really should move on to talking about the musical mind, uh, yeah, a portrait in process. Yeah, um, that, that's what we're here to discuss, even though, yeah, it's almost been an hour now, but yeah, let's, let's oh my jump God, into I didn't realise, yeah, I've, I've talked too much. No, no, you haven't, you haven't, you, yeah. Um, so the documentary is a fascinating look into the creative processes of some very fascinating musicians. Um, firstly, this is the first film produced under your new production company, May 30 Entertainment. Congratulations on that, by the way. Yeah, it's it's really interesting Um a development which uh, we've established with um, David Chem, who's mm. was a is an erstwhile actor um, who was Australia's first Asian TV star, actually as a as a teenager, uh, having you know escaped from Vietnam in a in a leaky boat, um, you know, and David's gone on to become a huge sort of international entrepreneur based in Singapore, um, with a everlasting interest in film and having graduated from from afters and so on and uh, we just have a really deep friendship that stretches back 30 plus years um and we've joined forces in this uh, may 30 entertainment and the musical mind is the first yeah the first product of that of that relationship where i'm curious to know about the name may 30 where, where did that come from oh well, it's just something that is important between our families, really. Oh, it's a great, sort of, great. Yeah, just you know, we you, you go through so many permutations of company names. It's yeah. and most of them are unobtainable because somebody else has them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> are documentaries like this, like this one, are they what you plan to make under this banner, or, or what are some of the oh, other productions that you really, want to make? The the intent is to make films what we what we think of as real stories i mean stories yeah. a lot of them probably based on real life yeah. as a, many of my films have been um but real stories with heart sort of i mean shine as a sort of example in the sense of light at the end of the tunnel mm-hmm. in other words they can be very difficult they can be very dark but there has to be some redemptive element that takes you out of the cinema with some positive view of life and yeah. so that's really the spirit of of what we're trying to do and the musical mind is a, the first kind of representation of that in a documentary form yes. uh, but others will be drama, dr- dramatic feature films and and so on which we have in development that's very exciting to hear um the musical mind is a family affair actually i was interested in uh, interested to read having been co-written and co-produced by your son jet and yes. uh, co-produced by your wife kerry how did this one come about for the three of you together well it just made just made made sense i mean jerry uh, kerry's been a you know producer on on numerous films of mine yeah, yeah. Uh, jet has was a a, a professional uh, touring musician, rock and roll musician for years and uh, is then now actually working with one of David Chem's companies in Singapore. Wow. Uh, based, well, the, the company's based in Singapore, um, but uh, has, has been included in this whole um, development of this, this May 30 concept. Mm. So it made absolute sense that he was, he was integrally involved and um, worked really closely uh, with me and, in the scripting and you know in in the process of of working with the various uh, musicians that we encountered it was so good to have another working musician who could understand their you know their life and the complexities of their lives you know mm-hmm. did did you learn anything from working with jet on on the film um yeah no oh, absolutely i mean you know he he um i learned a lot in terms of sort of immediacy of the conversation and you know just uh 
how to and he has a tremendously positive manner of always looking forward never never looking back and never regretting well why do i wish we'd done that or it's always what's the next thing we're going to do which i think is a really powerful force um australia is filled to the brim with world-class musicians uh musical talent across all genres uh obviously david is what ties everyone together here how did you settle on this lot in particular well they all had some connection or affiliation in some way with shine or my process with shine so there was obviously david himself but then um daniel johns had uh, invited david to work with him on emotion sickness um and record that with with silverchair back in those days and yeah. uh they just formed a tremendous uh connection with each other um and so a part of my i thought what if i could bring them back together again mm-hmm. and it just turned into this absolutely beautiful uh impromptu sort of improvisation of the two of them over a piano that was just this really a a life memory for me yeah, yeah it was so emotive and so moving um so that was that was you know involving daniel was a, an integral part of it and i think because i think of daniel as one of our living national treasures you know oh, yeah, yeah as a musician mm. and um and then simon tedeschi uh, as a child prodigy his hands had appeared for the young david yeah. in shine yeah. so he was a natural fit <laughs> Um, and Ben Folds was living in Adelaide and uh, married to an Adelaide girl and had his twins here and spent a number of years here. So we became friends during that period as well. Um, so there was that connection too. So that really led me to sort of contemplate all four of these people and their process yeah, yeah. and their, you know, individual approaches to their musical discipline that they have. Uh, and they're just each of them has such a fascinating story to tell, which which I've interwoven. So it's like a collective portrait. Um, and at the same time, we see their portraits being actually created by an artist who happens to be married to Simon Tedeschi. Yes. He was a natural part of that, too. And uh, yeah, it's it's a journey into the into the musical mind um, yes, and a contemplation yeah. on the process. Now, you just mentioned it there, but uh, seeing the final moment of this film between Dan and David sitting at the, at the piano, it's a purely magical meeting of these magnificent minds. What, what was it like to witness this for you and, and to observe this creativity? Because people would pay a lot of money to see that live. Well, it's a life memory for me, I yeah. have to say, because it was so moving. Um, and at one point, uh, we were f- I, we had four cameras operating myself and Jet and two other, you know, camera people from different angles. And um, and Daniel stopped one point and looked around and said, what the fuck is, what is happening? And I looked around and we were all in tears. Um, I mean, it was so powerful. Yeah. And Daniel was crying. Mm-hmm. And um, it just, it was, it's, I mean, it, it's hard to convey. Uh, there was just some moment of connection that was irre- irreplaceable and unrepeatable yeah. um, and totally unplanned you know yeah. Uh, yeah. and that was that was the astonishing experience mm. i can't wait for everyone to to see this and to see that moment in the film is there anyone in particular who you would have liked to have had in the film who couldn't be in it for one reason or another well i mean look at one stage i was it was going to fan out into other areas and with other musicians but covid put paid to all of that uh, I mean, yes yeah. you know because I, I mean i started shooting back in you know 2021 and um a lot has happened since then and really i, I ended up with all this amazing footage of these four people and i thought there has to be the story has to be in here somewhere i had mm-hmm. 800 pages of transcripts you know and mm-hmm. so eventually you know as as will happen in the documentary process, you know, you you search and you search and you find the threads yeah. that can, can connect um, and and interweave, you know. And that's mm-hmm. so that that was that was the journey. In a way, it was purer for being just focused on the four of them and Laura Bell's painting. Yes, yeah. Um, and by and and a youth orchestra that David Helfgott 
players with yeah and the inspirational teacher that leads them you know so there are so many other little avenues through the story now I'm I'm curious to know what where this painting is now because I don't think it's revealed at the end uh, what what actually happens with this painting. Oh, the painting that's created. I don't know. I guess it's in Laurie Bell's studio. Yeah, yeah. A good thought. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good movie poster right there. <laughs> well, we've used um, her some artwork of Laurie Bell's on our poster. I guess uh, one other thing that brought me so much joy while watching this film was seeing David and Gillian's relationship still going so strong after all these years. What a what a beautiful relationship they had, and uh, and I was saddened to hear uh, that Gillian has since passed, and that the film is dedicated to her. Um, yeah, at at yeah. what point of the filmmaking process did Gillian pass, and, and did she get to see any of it? Sadly, no. Um... But uh, it was certainly part of my sense of urgency in in getting the filming was that you know she was ninety one, yeah, so she, yeah. she was an amazing woman, mm. quite amazing. Um, now I, I just have I have one more question here, which yeah. I which I end all of uh, my podcast episodes on, and uh, I, I was very very aware of the time and and that we were going over there, but uh, I, I would like to finish it just with this one question, and then I'll wrap it up. But um, uh, it's a question that I ask all of my podcast guests at the at the end of the episode. Um, but have you seen any Australian films lately that have stood out for you? Uh, I know you're a big supporter of the Adelaide Film Festival. D- did you catch anything there? I loved. Um... Mutiny in Heaven, which oh, is yes. the, um, the uh, story of the Nick Cave and the, and the birthday party, um, yes. another musical documentary like The Musical Mind, but yeah. so different in the sense of all this sort of un- incredible archival footage and and their rough and tumble journey to, uh, you know, to achieve something out of nothing was yeah. absolutely fantastic, um, brilliantly executed, Um you know, the, a world in which the blurrier and more obscured the images, the better it gets. Yes, yes. <laughs> so much yeah. so that they were doing that even with, you know, the um, Ian White, I think the director had, you know, decided to, <laughs> the, even the, any recent uh, interviews that they shot had to be sort of obliterated and deteriorated to fit the rest of the film. Yes. So, I mean, anyway, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly um, powerful story. Um, uh, of of and more amazing musical minds. Let's face it. Yeah, um, uh, extraordinary person. I'm really glad that you got to mention that film. It's fantastic, uh, Scott. I can't thank you enough for joining the Cinema Australia podcast and for sharing your incredible stories with us. So uh, thank you very thank much. You. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. It's been terrific. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for listening. Find all the latest Australian film news at cinemaaustralia.com.au. You can follow Cinema Australia on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and TikTok.